Under the Tartan Sky, episode 42, produced 11 June 2017. Tourism today is big business in Scotland, a vital part of the Scottish economy. In 2015, Scotland attracted over 14.6 million tourists. Their spending generated about 12 billion pounds of economic activity and contributed about 6 billion pounds to the Scottish GDP, or about 5% of the total. Of course, hospitality goes hand in hand with tourism. And in Scotland, some recently completed research has shed new light on the earliest purveyors of hospitality across the highlands and islands, and the answer may surprise you. I'm Glenn Moyer, and friend of the podcast, Teresa Mackay, joins me in a moment to take us back to the turn of the 19th century, here under the Tartan Sky. History, heritage, archaeology. In 2017, Scotland invites you to peer into the mists. Scotland's history is a long and rich one, filled with stories of legends and myths. Its heritage can be found in fields of standing stones and the ruins of castles that once were clan strongholds. Through the science of archaeology, new discoveries of ruins and artefacts are continuously being made that often reveal tantalising new clues to stories yet untold. In 2017, more than 50 events are planned built around nine major festivals as Scotland invites visitors and locals alike to come face to face with the past. Great legends have been made throughout Scotland's history. What story will you write when you visit Scotland in the year of history, heritage and archaeology? If you're planning to travel across Scotland, what's one of your first concerns? Well, where to stay, of course. Where will you hang your hat each evening on your journey? Where will you find a hot meal, a dram of whiskey? And who can offer suggestions on what to see and do in the area of your destination? These issues are true today, and were even more of a concern at the turn of the 19th century, when tourism first began to make an impact across the Scottish Highlands and Islands. You'll agree things were a bit different some 225 years ago. There were no big-name hotel chains, no Airbnb. But there was someone who would leave the light on for you. That someone was likely a female innkeeper. Teresa Mackay is an assistant professor and program head at the School of Tourism and Hospitality Management at Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. She's recently completed her Master of Letters in the History of the Scottish Highlands and Islands, and in doing so, she uncovered some unique new information about the earliest beginnings of the hospitality industry in that region of Scotland, the Highlands and Islands, namely the role of female innkeepers. Encouraged to pursue her research, it became her master's dissertation and an article based on that work to be published in 2018 titled Women at Work, Inkeeping in the Highlands and Islands of Scotland, 1790 to 1840, 
has already won the Women's History Scotland Leah Lineman Essay Prize for 2016. Teresa is no stranger to the podcast, having been on twice before to talk about genealogical research in Scotland and about the Scott diaspora migration to British Columbia, so it's a pleasure to welcome her back. Her research examines a very specific 50-year period of Scottish history, and I first wanted to know why such a narrow focus. I was doing a very, very small research paper during my master's at the University of the Highlands and Islands, and I had uh, I was looking at women at work in the Highlands and Islands, and it was just a very small, you know, sort of 3,000-word research paper. And I used one resource, um, and it was Dorothy Wordsworth's diary. So Wordsworth is probably a familiar last name. She mm. was the sister of William Wordsworth, uh, the poet and writer. And um, she had gone into the Highlands and Islands with her brother, William, and their friend, who and another familiar name, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Uh, so the three of them had gone into the Highlands and Islands on a tour, and she had written a diary. And so this is early 1800s. And I read the diary from cover to cover. And actually, um, your listeners, if they want to read it, it's actually a public document that's available at archive.org. Uh, and I read it from cover to cover, and I was fascinated by her descriptions of the Highlands and Islands and what she experienced as a traveler. And in between all of that, she talked about these women that she met along the way who were innkeepers and providing them in uh, services. And it was actually my supervisor, Dr. Elizabeth Ritchie, who pointed it out to me and said, you know, there's a lot here. <laughs> there may be more to this than we're thinking. So I started to dig a bit deeper and looked at the available sources, and it really started to narrow my timeline. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to look at um, innkeeping prior to the first census in Scotland, which was 1841? And Unfortunately, what that does is it really limits the amount of material that you can look at. So I don't know what I was thinking when I thought, <laughs> let's do it before the census. Oh, let's do it the hard way, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's do it the hard way, exactly. Um, but I thought that would be interesting to look at, as well as prior to railways going into the Highlands and Islands. What was traveling like prior to that opening up? And really what happened is uh, with the sources – and with looking at prior to the census, it started to narrow the timeline to about 50 years. And there's a key source of information in Scotland when you're doing research in this area, and it's the uh, statistical accounts. And there is one that was done basically at the beginning of that period and one that was done at the end of that period, about a 35-year time span. And it gives you an opportunity to look at what it was like at the beginning and what it was like at the end. So I thought 50 years would be a, a perfect time frame. That's how I narrowed it down. And so was was a key, though, the, the fact that you were going to do this before the first census? I mean, did that start to target the time frame for you? It did, but it was really more prior to the railways. I wanted to okay. look at um, what tourism was like during that time. So, you know, if you think about it, prior to the railways, how would people have gotten into the Highlands and Islands? And how would they have toured around and what would they have experienced I wanted to look at um, that period specifically. Once the railways were in, there's a lot more um, uh, sources that are available. Uh, so again, I guess I was looking at the hard way. <laughs> but um, I also realized that in keeping in the Gallic culture in Highlands and Islands was really not researched heavily. So um, that was appealing to me. Is it fair to say at the outset then that you were looking, we're looking at a period that is 
almost the birth of tourism as an industry in Scotland? I would say so. I mean, certainly people were traveling within uh, that area prior to this 1790-1840 time period. But I would say that, uh, especially based on the research that I've done, that this was pivotal uh, for rural infrastructure for tourism and hospitality in highlands and islands. And you noted that, obviously, once the railways entered the area, um, things changed tremendously as far as tourism and access. But there were some significant changes that took place in the 50-year period you're looking at that really led to um, what you've documented as an explosion of inns uh, across the highlands and islands. What were some of those changes that started to bring tourism to this area? Yeah, absolutely. There were a whole ton of changes. To me, it was almost like a perfect storm in a way. Uh, There were wars on the continent. So you can imagine if you are uh, someone, let's say, who is uh, has a bit of leisure time and has a bit of money. So we're talking gentry class uh, people, uh, say, in England, and you're thinking, gee, I, I want to spend some time traveling around. Where might I go? Uh, you're going to go in the opposite direction of any war that's happening. <laughs> so you're <laughs> yes. not going to go. Combat zones don't count as holiday uh, destinations, I don't think. <laughs> Exactly. And they still don't to this day. So, you know, you're going to go away from France, away from Spain and other places where there were uh, conflicts. And, you know, so there was sort of a natural tendency to look north. At the same time, there was popular fiction uh, out there. So Sir Walter Scott was producing um, works and that was becoming incredibly popular. So, you know, in a way, no different than Outlander or Harry Potter, you know, books like that. uh, fiction uh, that is popular that gets us to travel into areas to be able to see these places that we imagine in our heads. So fiction was also another sort of um, impetus or reason why people would want to go into the Highlands and Islands because Sir Walter Scott talked a lot about this sort of romantic vision of the Highlands and people wanted to see this for real. Um, the other thing is that um, there was sort of this afterglow of Boswell and Johnson, who were two sort of celebrity travelers uh, that wrote diaries about their travel travels into the Highlands and Islands. So that was still around as well. And people thought, oh, it would be great to uh, recreate what the trips that they did. But on a more practical level, there were improvements to transportation infrastructure, which helped people travel. So, for example, Henry Bell, uh, during this period, took one of his steamships into the Highlands and Islands and allowed the public to buy tickets on the steamship so that they could travel. Uh, So you didn't need to have your own horse, for example, anymore. You could take a steamship from port to port. Thomas Telford uh, developed roads and canals as well. So that opened up previous areas that were previously hard to travel through. And this was a benefit not only to the travelers and people from away, but also people who were locals as well. Before we get too deep into this, we want to make a distinction. We're going to be talking a lot about female innkeepers. That was obviously the, the subject of your of your research. So can you give us a clear definition? Because there is a difference between an inn and a pub. And, and I think a lot of people <laughs> yeah. are going to think innkeepers because we're talking about we're going to be talking about the, the hospitality industry, the tourism industry. And so I think early on we should establish what is the difference when we're talking about what's an inn and what's considered a pub? What are the key differences? Yeah, and I started to pick up on that really quickly, actually, when I was doing a lot of the research into the sources, because there were a whole 
bunch of different terms for what we might think to be the same thing. So there was uh, there were pubs or public houses, there were ale houses mentioned, there were inns, obviously, and hotels. And each one of them was slightly different. So I had a, a dilemma to go, okay, I need to be really clear on what we're looking at. And I began to determine that consistently, without fail, travelers in their um, letters and in their diaries that they were writing consistently called them inns. And inns essentially had four things. They had food, drink, accommodations overnight, you could stay there, and as well as stables or services to accommodate horses overnight. So those four things determined that it was an inn. A public house, for example, may or may not have had accommodation, may or may not have had food, and may or may not have been able to take horses overnight. They might have had, you know, a place you could tie up your horse for that moment, but not a barn or um, uh, things for horses that, you know, who need to be fed and that sort of thing. So I eliminated anything called a pub or a public house just because it was too vague as to whether or not it was it actually had all of those four services. I also eliminated anything called an alehouse because alehouse, more consistently than not, was just focused around whiskey and drinking uh, and didn't necessarily or I couldn't confirm that it had accommodation or stabling for overnight. So, and the hotel piece is interesting too, because we start to see that term based on the French term sort of uh, pop up in the sources later on in the 1790 to 1840 period, but more so connected with urban locations in the Highlands and Islands, like Inverness. Um, I wasn't looking at urban areas, um, and often those hotels didn't have stabling. So I eliminated that as well. So what really what that does is it narrows it down to specific to inns specifically, because that's what travelers were looking for, that inns had all those four services. And it also allows us to think that possibly the numbers that are reported within this research are really almost underreported or conservative. And in fact, there may have been many more inns uh, or things that were considered inns than we can actually clearly see within the sources. You mentioned a moment ago about Outlander, and uh, there's a lot being written and reported about the so-called Outlander effect on the Scottish tourism industry present day, um, because it has resulted in uh, incredible increases in numbers of tourists uh, visiting, especially the Highlands and Islands, where Outlander is set, of course. And it's a it's a popular day romanticism, if you will, of the lifestyle of the Highlands and Islands. You know, I'm thinking it will be interesting. 200 years from now to, to, to wonder how people will look back on this time frame in this time period of Scottish history and how they will document the, the impact that uh, the Outlander effect had on Scottish tourism. So looking backward into the time frame you're looking at, you mentioned the literature of the time uh, being one of the influences. Was that one of the earliest time periods of uh, where there was a, a more or less widespread romanticism of the Highlands and the Highland lifestyle at that time? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can see that within the literature, uh, which is spread widely, you know, I mean, you have to think to remember, because I think sometimes we forget there was no TV, there was no phone, there was no, so yeah. what are they going to do? Right? Yeah, literature was, was much more a part of the entertainment for people in that time frame than it is for us perhaps today. 
absolutely, absolutely. That was the thing to do. If you could read, because I mean, there's that too. Not a lot of people could read in certain areas. Um, but if you could read, that was absolutely uh, your entertainment. Uh, and you couldn't wait to get your book. And um, so certainly there was, uh, we see that. And it will be interesting to look 200 years from now, though we won't be around. But uh, the impact that books like Outlander have had on tourism in Scotland. But the whole point around romanticism, we see that within that sort of early 1800s period, period especially with Queen Victoria and her um, mm. love of uh, romantic Scotland and going into uh, Belmont Castle, Braemar, places like that, uh, taking actually staged pictures of herself in her Highland regalia. And we see that uh, fascination with that. But in many ways, it's a representation of Scotland that is not a, uh, it's just a different representation than what the culture actually is. And I think we see this even in the research on inns, because uh, in some of the sources in the, that talk about the later period, or that are in the later period, we see innkeepers who, you know, dress their servants in very typical Victorian Scottish regalia and sort of push them out towards the, the travelers who are from England to serve them, you know, so that there's sort of this spectacle that goes on with uh, romantic Scotland, as it were. Well, and you mentioned Queen Victoria. She ties directly to my favorite place in Scotland, and that's which is in the Highlands, and that's Ardvariki Estate. Which, which legend has, were it not for the the midges and and possibly maybe the wet weather, um, that might have become the royal residence in uh, Scotland as opposed to Balmoral. But that was one of her favorite places at first, and and she almost uh, purchased the, the uh, property as uh, as the royal residence. But uh, legend has it anyway that the the swarms of midges which are going to be at a record high this year in Scotland, by the way, for anyone who's planning to travel, which I am, but hopefully they'll be gone by the time I'm there in September. Um, as you say, people were beginning to travel in this time frame. What's the baseline for the type of accommodation and hospitality that they, that they were finding prior to this renaissance in travel, if you will, that, that then began this explosion of inns and, and the emergence of the female innkeeper? It would have it varied incredibly, and that's what we see. I mean, you have to remember it's a rural area, so this is what we're looking at, right? Not an urban area. So an urban area, you would have had a, a lot more um, buildings that were inns as we could kind of imagine them, uh, what they would be like today. But in rural areas, if you're going from post to post or place to place, uh, you're not necessarily running into inns. Uh, as we might imagine them, so small homes, um, but you're running into people's houses. And if you're uh, along a thoroughfare or a trackway and it's getting to be evening and the weather is starting to sock in and you want a place to stay, you're going to basically uh, be asking anybody who is along the road, you're going to be knocking on doors to say, uh, is there a place to stay nearby? And so not only were there tenants' homes, we also see evidence of things like sheep bothies and barns and any structure that people had, they would accommodate travelers in. Early in the period, uh, we see a lot of evidence of people providing the accommodations 
and there's no indication, no strong indication that they actually charged for it. It was more that sort of what we would think of as typical Highland hospitality, you know, um, come in, here's a traveler. Yes, you can sit down at my fire. Yes, share a whiskey with me and please, you know, use my back room and stay overnight. And there, there isn't a strong indication of people charging, but we see that change. And what we see is sort of a more formal structure over time where there are two uh, places people could stay. One is at a tenant's home. So again, women who would open their homes and say, yes, come in and I will charge you. And we see that sort of money exchange happening. Um, but the other is uh, buildings that were either converted. So for example, a manse would have been converted into an inn um, or lairds would have built an inn on their estate. So we see that more formal building, more formal architecture uh, being the uh, local inn. So at, over time, you see sort of a shift from anything and everything to these sort of more consistent tenant homes and uh, layered inns. And we're talking about a time frame when layers were very much the way of life in the Highlands. And you mentioned tenant homes. And at this time frame, uh, there really was no such thing, unless you were a laird, there really was no such thing as being a homeowner. You were a tenant right. in a property that the laird owned. And lairds had huge property holdings, but naturally there were, for lack of a better term, thoroughfares, which are not necessarily what we would consider to be. They certainly weren't motorways um, at that time or highways, but there were roads for people to, to travel. And you mentioned in your research how Lairds became somewhat entrepreneurial as they realized that travel was increasing and people were traversing these roadways across their property, looking for places to stay. Uh, somewhere the light bulb went off and went, aha, I can build an inn and I can provide this service and it will, I can make revenue off of it. Um, and you talk about the fact that Laird's uh, were one of the key factors in that, that whole process that I've just described. The traveler begats the place to, needing a place to stay. The Laird recognizes the opportunity to make money and you build an inn, a purpose built um, uh, structure. So that was very much a part of this explosion of inns during this time frame, wasn't it? Yes, it was. They had massive estates and they needed to make money off of that to be able to uh, uh, function. And obviously, you know, as any entrepreneur would do and they have a big swath of land, what do you do with it and how do you make money on it? And one of the things that they did is they, they saw this influx of travelers into the area during this time and these people needing a place to stay. And especially if they had these tracks or thoroughfares, as you mentioned, there would be lots of people um, on there going from place to place and needing these services and needing a place to stay. So they took advantage of that and really capitalized on that opportunity and built, not only did they build buildings that were inns, they also built other uh, sort of adjunct structures. So they built, for example, um, uh, piers for boat landing. So if they were at a place where a boat would normally do a, a wet landing, I don't know if that's what you call it, but where you would uh, pilot your boat and then everyone would get out in the water and walk onto the shore. Mm, okay. What they did, if, if there was a, a natural place where boats kept going back and forth and transporting people, they would, uh, we see evidence of them building a pier so that boats had a place to land and then they would build an inn right beside it. So we see that consistently that the Lairds uh, work with their factors or their land managers to identify places that are perfect for inns and actually build these inns. 
So there's even one, actually, I can give you one example um, of Lord Bradalbin. And I know you and I have talked before, Glenn, and yes. about that area and uh, your love of that area. The new statistical account of Scotland, which was that document that I that I mentioned earlier, that is so key. It's uh, parish reports uh, during this time frame, and it basically is um, the people talking about what their uh, area is like at that time. So it's really, really valuable in terms of research in the Highlands and Islands. And there is one quote that I'll, I'll just read you quickly because it is about Lord Bradalbin. So uh, this, this parish report says, nowhere in the Highlands has more attention been paid to the accommodation of the traveler than on the property of Lord Bradalbin in a line of public road of about 90 miles in length, extending from Inverary to Perth. Good inns with suitable offices are built at proper stages and kept in repair at considerable expense by his lordship, specifically at Damley, Tyndrum, Killen, Kenmore, and Amory. So it's wonderful to be able to read that and go, look, you know, even Lord Bradalbin was making inns or building inns uh, all the way across this uh, one line of public road, as this report says. And we're, we've talked about the fact that this was a time frame where there was a tremendous increase in leisure tourism. This is also a time frame when we begin to see the elements of business tourism evolving in Scotland as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. In terms of um, definitely there was business travelers. And I think that's what the research hasn't really looked at before. We've looked a lot. Um, historians have looked a lot at uh, tourists. So what was that person like who came from England or Italy or wherever uh, into the Highlands and Islands? But we haven't really looked at or considered business travelers. Uh, so aside from drovers, drovers would be that sort of one exception. There's been a lot of work done on drovers. So people who are men who are cattle dealers uh, coming down from the northern areas of Scotland into the southern areas for the fairs or trysts. But we also see people like going about their daily business. So military and government officials and school inspectors and people who had jobs where traveling was required. And they were guests at these inns as well. The other thing that I want to establish before we get into some of the really specific stuff of uh, specific elements of your, I hate to use the word stuff. That sounds so non-academic. <laughs> There's lots of stuff. Lots of, lots of stuff. <laughs> but uh, some of the stuff we're going to talk about. Um, but the other thing I wanted to establish, the, the fact with regard to the basis of your research is this is the first research that I'm aware of, and, and, and I'm sure it is you as well, because you're the one who did the research. That really looked, I say it's an, an outside or it's sort of the inside looking out viewpoint as opposed to outside looking in. There is ample research looking at this genre of travel and tourism and the, the emergence of the hospitality industry from the viewpoint of the tourist. Uh, the person who needs these services. I'm a traveler and I need a place to stay. And that has been somewhat well reported. What really hasn't been looked at, if I understand uh, your work correctly, is from the other, through the, the eyes of the person who provided the service, i.e. the innkeeper. And we're going to talk about how uh, that became and, and there was this influx of female innkeepers. Um, but so why did you take the, as I call it, the inside looking out, or you call it the bottom from the bottom up um, viewpoint? What was it that intrigued you about looking at this subject um, from a different viewpoint? Well, it was really 
sort of inspired by James Hunter, who wrote The Making of the Crofting Community, which is an absolutely seminal work. Uh, he wrote it in the 60s and then have, has provided some updates, um, you know, straight up until the 2000s. And uh, it was part of his PhD research, if I remember correctly. And he, prior to him writing that, uh, people had looked at crofting from the perspective of the laird or the factor or outsiders looking in. And what he did is said, you know what, the crofters don't have a voice here. We need to understand better mm. uh, the, the um, uh, perspective of the crofter. So he spoke from the crofter's perspective. And I believe he also had a family uh, relation who was a crofter. And so there was that inspiration for him as well to give those people a voice. And so that was um, a key uh, book that I just loved. And I've taken that forward into this research and gone, okay, we've looked at travelers and we've looked at tourists, as, as you've said, Glenn, but we really haven't heard from the innkeepers themselves. And so that, uh, between looking at the innkeepers themselves and also looking at the rural perspective as opposed to the urban, because there's lots of, relatively speaking, lots of research on urban innkeepers. Uh, we see some out of Aberdeen, lots on English inns. Uh, there were way more English inns than there were in the <laughs> highlands and islands at this time. So there's a significant amount there. Um, there's a lot on inn names, uh, architecture of the buildings, and even uh, inns that are sort of a support to research on other topics like whiskey. And so what I realized, though, is that the innkeeper's voice from a rural perspective, Highlands and Islands and Giltop culture was not being looked at. And those innkeepers were, did not have a voice. So that allowed me to kind of uh, fill in a bit of the gaps in, in our knowledge. And, and the final fact I want to set before we talk about some of the specific cases is we, we talk about the significance of this time frame as the beginning of the tourism hospitality industry in Scotland. And, and you really documented that there was what, what I termed an explosion in the number of inns across the highlands and islands. How, how much did that change over this 50 years that you've looked at from the number of inns that were in existence at the beginning of that time frame versus the number that were in existence at the end of this 50 years, there was tremendous growth at that period, right? There was absolutely. I mean, you can, you can, during this time period, you can see where the inns are. And essentially at the beginning of the time period, there is, uh, there's sort of in a pattern if you put them on a map and you can see that there is a lot between Fort William and Inverness, which makes sense given uh, the forts that were there and some of the military happenings that were going on. So certainly we see that sort of pattern. And then we also see in, and I, so I'm specifically talking about the mainland of the Highlands and Islands, uh, you see a lot between Oban and sort of east-west over to Perth. So, and that is essentially um, for that sort of early tourism development in the Trossachs. Uh, Loch Lomond, places like that. So there was early tourism happening in those areas. Uh, but so we start the period with inns being in existence in those uh, places. And then we can see in 35 years, it just literally, as you said, explodes. And if we just look at inns, remember we were talking earlier about, well, there's public houses and there's ale houses mm -hmm. and hotels yeah. and that 
If we just remove all of that and we look specifically at what we know we're ins and the ins that were actually documented, because of course there are going to be ins that exist that are never documented and we don't know that they ever exist. Sure. Um, so if we just look at the ins that were documented, for example, if we look at the islands of Lewis and Harris, so on the uh, outer, outer Hebrides, they went from zero in. So these, these are not large places, right? They went from zero ins to at least eight. We know that for sure. Sky, and I know that you've been to Sky, and it's an amazing yes. location. It went from two lodgings to at least 14. We know that, that uh, for certain. Uh, in Ross and Cromartie, so of those parishes in Ross and Cromartie that said they had zero inns at the beginning of the period, a total of more than 42 existed 35 years later. So, wow. and again, remembering that, these are just the inns that we know for certain. These are not all the inns that existed. So there was an absolute uh, explosion, even in Sutherland. And you have to remember that 1790 to 1840, there was a lot of unrest in Sutherland, uh, clearances through that area. Even in, even in a place like Sutherland, the inns jumped from two that were reported at the beginning of the period to 21. So, yes, huge explosion uh, and you know, obviously, because of uh, the amount of people that were coming through there needing these services. And so we've documented then that there obviously was a tremendous increase in tourism in this 50-year period you're looking at. That increase in tourism and traveling um, begat, if you will, an increase in the number of inns that you've just documented. So where there are inns, there must be innkeepers. Um, and that gets to the really to the root of your research. Um, and your research keys on female innkeepers. Was that because you yourself are female, or was there another hook there that, that took you to look at that specific part of this growth? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, certainly I was more interested in, or have always been more interested in women's history because it is so, uh, uh, there's not a lot of work that has been done on that over time. And so I kind of gravitate in that way anyways. But I started looking at innkeepers in general, mainly because um, thinking that I'm probably not going to find a lot on female innkeepers because women have been sort of underdocumented uh, in history over time. And I thought, oh, what are my chances of finding these women? And so I thought really I was going to be just looking at innkeeping in general, which also hadn't been looked at in uh, the Highlands and islands. But as I went on and I went through the sources, I started picking out all of these women that were mentioned, documented, talked about, you know, they were placing ads, for example, in newspapers, I was picking up those ads. And I thought, I've got to get a handle on how many women I'm actually looking. So um, I started to document every single one of them that I found and where they were from, what they were called, uh, if they had a name, if they were married, any information that I could find. And eventually I stopped at 64 because I thought <laughs> I can't keep doing this. <laughs> I have proven that there were female innkeepers, I think. So um, I had to stop. But uh, there were definitely, uh, I say more than 60, because I think two of the women that I found uh, were actually duplicates of two others. It's, the, it's too similar to say that they, they were different women. But um, 
when I, when I plot those, when I looked at the women and I went, gosh, look at all of these women just popping up here as innkeepers. And I looked at this explosion events that you were talking about earlier. I basically charted them on a map and went, where does it all overlap? And it is uncanny that the pattern of in development is identical to the pattern of where these women were. So I can say without a doubt that women were innkeepers in the Highlands and Islands, throughout the Highlands and Islands, and were significant to basically uh, establishing the hospitality infrastructure for tourism there. Well, and, and I have to admit, as I've read and, and watched your presentation on your research, you know, my initial reaction was female innkeepers, well, duh. Um, I mean, the very the very early origin you're talking about tenants opening their homes. You know, the thought is, it, it is, and this is going to sound terribly sexist, and I hate to do that, but it, it, certainly in that time, it was the woman's role, if you will. Um, she was the caretaker of the family. Uh, she did the cooking, the laundry, the cleaning. Uh, you know, basically was the housekeeper. Was the the basis of any hospitality one would find. Though it might be, I suppose, the man who welcomed you into the home and that you sat and shared a whiskey with. But to me, it seemed rather obvious that if you're going to have an innkeeper, it would be a woman. And perhaps that's a male point of view, and and I can't deny that bias. But was there really something unique about this emergence of female innkeepers at this time? There must have been that found that certainly tagged your interest and led to all of this research that you've done. Yeah, it's, it's, and you know what, I, I can totally understand where you're coming from, but um, it's interesting because in history, we can't do the well, duh, as you <laughs> say, which I've done before too. Well, it makes the um, history books a lot shorter that way. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? But you can't do that until you actually find the sources and the evidence, right? So we can go, yes, we assume that women were probably innkeepers given the kinds of jobs that an innkeeper would be required to do. But until we see the evidence, we can't go, yes, okay, we know for certain then that women were innkeepers. So there's certainly that, but until we do the research, we don't know. But what's interesting about this is um, it it shows us that in the Highlands and Islands, women were doing the same thing as women throughout Europe. So we know from uh, other historical research that's been done that women naturally gravitate to or have gravitated towards uh, skills and jobs that mirrored the skills that they already had growing up. So in this case, with innkeepers, you know, taking care of a family is very similar to running an inn. So we see that connection uh, quite strongly, that women in the Highlands and Islands gravitated towards that. What's different, though, is that um, unless they were uh, hired full-time as um, an innkeeper of a laird's inn, uh, and possibly even even if they were, uh, women in the Highlands and Islands did many things to make up that basket of money that would help them survive. So not only uh, did they do dairying, they did spinning, they did um, innkeeping, uh, you know, they worked on the family farm and all women in the Highlands and Islands, even the elderly were expected to work and were expected to contribute to the family income. So innkeeping was sort of one part of that larger uh, revenue source. The other thing that's interesting is that we look at the, um, you know, the entrepreneurial perspective uh, of the women, and it's really heightened when you look at the demographics. We see many of the innkeepers were widows 
or they were singletons. So even if uh, they weren't that and their husbands received public acknowledgement as being the innkeeper, we can see in the evidence that, you know, even if the guy was the one who was getting the name in the directory, it was really the woman who was managing these complex commercial operations. So they weren't just cooking and changing beds, but obviously that happened. Um, they weren't just doing that. They were, in fact, business owners. Well, yes, and you, you mentioned that um, throughout the research, uh, that there is an entrepreneurial element here because the the female innkeeper moves from the role of being a homemaker, a housekeeper, who, as we've, as we've rather, well, as we've discussed, the, doing the laundry, doing the cleaning, doing the cooking, et cetera, to now... Uh, once they start charging for the provision of this, these services in an in setting, now they're not only are they doing those things, but they're having to to manage when is the laundry done, how much of it is done. They're having to take a look at uh, the stocks of whiskey and ale, and when do I need to you know to buy more, order more. We talked about inns providing stabling for horses, and there is an, certainly an amount of accounting that has to be done to make sure that the there's more money coming in than there is going out in terms of supplies and ale and food, lest the inn go under. So really, this is an emergence of these women as uh, as businesswomen, as running and organizing and maintaining a business. So they move from the role of the traditional home homekeeper, homemaker, housekeeper, into the role of a business entrepreneur, don't they? They do. They do, absolutely. And they what they need to do, especially within the rural communities, because let's uh, remember that this is, you know, it's country, essentially. Uh, you're not in a big city. Uh, and so people are more spread out. Uh, you've got to create those networks to help you deliver the services uh, and supply the inn and supply even your home with what you need. So as these uh, travelers would come into the highlands and islands, many of them, uh, you know, in many ways sophisticated, which is not the best uh, description, but people who uh, were gentry class who have maybe stayed at several inns in England, for example, like we talked about earlier, there are a lot more inns at this time in England than there were in this area that we're looking at, but um, would have stayed, would have been sort of used to a certain kind of service offering. And they come into the Highlands and Islands. Many of the inns are just sort of either getting up and running or uh, more new or um, people haven't been doing it, say, as long as they had in the more urban centers. And they have to provide services uh, at the demand of uh, the people that are staying there. And so what that creates is um, the woman who is the innkeeper is in many ways, uh, in many ways forced to create these business networks to be able to satisfy the needs of the travelers that are staying there. We see evidence of uh, a female innkeeper, for example, Janet McLaren and Amory, who ends up, uh, has a supplier, a baker supplier from Aberfeldy who bakes her loaves of bread. For the inn, and we see it over and over and over again. He's delivering bread. You know, she's paying him for the bread. She's also lending him money. So he's essentially a local. She obviously knows him. She's lending him money, and he becomes more. Despite the bread being dropped off, he becomes more and more in debt to her. And eventually, she he starts delivering less bread than she's ordered, and we see that she actually switches bakers 
partway through the year. And so there's sort of an indication or suggestion there that she fires this guy. Mm. (laughs) So, you know, so this sort of um, interaction of um, hiring suppliers, expecting a certain service level, not getting it, and then potentially firing someone and then having to hire somebody else to supply the inn, you know, that's way more than just changing a bed. Indeed, indeed. And it's it really is a, a the emergence of an early sort of uh, entrepreneurial, what we today call networking, making those contacts, making business deals. You know, this is it's a win win situation where you like to use that term a lot in today. Um, you know, it's good for your business. It's good for mine. And so let's work together to make this happen. And I would expect you have to also see that where an inn pops up where perhaps there was not one before, now there is a need for this network of services. So the inn becomes kind of really a hub of economic development, not just within its own four walls, but within the community around it, or perhaps a wider spread community where there was no such economic network or impact prior to. Yes, I mean, yes, absolutely, because inns become this uh, sort of center point of uh, sustainability within the community, of economic sustainability, and of importance, because you can see that these networks are established, and then people begin to rely on travelers coming to the inn, whether they be locals or or tourists, as we were talking about, uh, they begin to rely on that business, because, you know, the bread baker down the street needs to, uh, needs that in to be using up using up the bread so that they can supply more um, people who speak both English and Gaelic want to be able to provide their services to travelers so that they can take travelers into strictly Gaelic speaking areas um, and so they want to be able to be paid as tour guides um, boats are rented out horses are rented um, the mail, uh, the mail routes are beginning to be established. You see the mail routes going from inn to inn to inn, and then the mail carriages are taking public uh, members of the public on their carriage and dropping them at the inn. So you get this influx of of uh, travelers, and you get the regular travelers, uh, like the drovers we were mentioning earlier, who were sort of on a regular schedule of going down to the fairs. So if you think about it that way, you begin to really see that inns became this sort of economic hub and center for the community. And then therefore, the people who are running the inns, these women, had status. And for a woman to have status, uh, uh, it was significant um, because Without a good relationship with that innkeeper, you know, you can imagine that you would not uh, necessarily benefit. So you wanted to uh, have not only the good relationship with the innkeeper, if you were a resident nearby who could provide a service, um, but you also sort of held that innkeeper up in terms of a heightened status within the community because they were crucial to whether or not you could live there. There are two things that you just commented on that are, are I find quite interesting, too. Uh, one is uh, the idea of the mail carriages going from end to end to end and these becoming mail stops, because that's something that to this day you can still do in the remoter parts of Scotland. Travelers can essentially hitch a ride with the mail truck and get from place to place across the highlands, some of the areas of the highlands and islands, uh, which I found when I first discovered that quite 
shall I say, quaint, but really uh, it, it's something you can still do in, in Scotland today. The other thing was the idea of, of horse rental, because I know you talk about it in some of your presentations where, again, hearkening back to, to business travel beginning or, or, or certainly expanding in this time frame, um, that you didn't have to own a horse anymore. You could, let's say you, you came on that boat, you got off on the pier and you stayed that night in the inn there by the seashore, and you could then rent a horse and travel inland to the next inn where you would spend the night and you would leave that horse there and get a fresh horse from the innkeeper and and ride it on to the next inn and so on and so on till you got to your regular destination. It, it was the beginning of the modern day, you know, rental car that you could pick up a car here and go to where you're going and drop it off. Exactly. That's exactly what it was like. It was no different. And so interesting that there's such a um, an easy sort of connection between these horse rentals and car rentals today. And you can see too that they would need then to have these relationships within a cooperative, collaborative sort of relationship with inns down the road as these horses were changed out. Well, it, I find it interesting because as I read your research, it, it, there are so many parallels you can draw to the emergence of modern day uh, travel and, and the hospitality industry. And I, I, that's kind of our summations that I want to jump ahead. But you, you begin to see those things in, like you say, the mail delivery, the, the, the horse rental versus you know, car rental, um, and even the expectations of the innkeeper. I know you talk a little bit about how in times, sometimes they also provided um, entertainment. And today, you know, when we travel from hotel to hotel into various cities, you know, a good major hotel has an excellent concierge who knows the right places to go, knows the best places to eat, the great entertainment in town, et cetera. And, and in this time frame that you're looking at, the innkeeper was that person. If I were a traveler and came in and, and was going to spend the night in an inn, I might want to know, well, where's the best pub in town or where can I go to do this or do that? And so that innkeeper also had to have a bit of uh, uh, concierge capability as well, I would think. They did. And, you know, there was, uh, I saw evidence definitely of uh, innkeepers sitting down with travelers and telling them about, you know, what is the great thing, what are the great things to see in this area and what can you do? And interestingly, though, uh, I saw that more with uh, the male innkeepers sitting down over a whiskey with travelers and talking to them about what's happening in the, in the, in the area, <laughs> much more than females. And I have to think, you know, my assumption is, is that the women were still running around getting all the food ready. Sure. They were doing all the everything. work where the guys were sitting and having a drink. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But uh, definitely that was happening. So we see also in the early, sort of early 1800s, uh, the emergence of guidebooks. So yes. remembering, too, that you wouldn't, it would be exactly as you said, you'd have to talk to other people to find out what to do and where to go and even how to get from place to place. But with the emergence of tourism in the Highlands and Islands, we start to see the emergence of printed guidebooks. And that's extremely useful. Uh, as well as some sort of destination little brochures. Uh, we see evidence of those being printed by innkeepers. Um, and things like um, competitions starting to happen. So uh, an incorrect information being given by innkeepers to travelers. So, for example, they might say, 
you know, you want to get from A to B. Oh, well, you can't get there, uh, you know, at this time of day. You'll have to stay overnight at the inn. Right. And then, so of course, <laughs> then they do. And then the travelers find out the next day, no, oh, they could have gotten across in the way that they wanted to. So we even see that happening as well. So there's this, you know, entrepreneurial, sort of unethical thing going on as well. <laughs> and um, you, you want to stay at this inn because they have a free continental breakfast. I mean, <laughs> it's true. Yes, exactly that. You know, Stay here, it's much better than there, kind of thing. Um, we also see uh, other things. You know, you mentioned the entertainment, and I'm such a huge supporter of the arts, so it was really lovely for me to be reading in these sources about um, innkeepers, hiring artists, singers, dancers, musicians, a lot of musicians to come in and entertain travelers uh, in the evening. So that was wonderful to see as well. And, um, and even souvenir gathering, you know, they would... Uh, in the Cairngorm areas, they would get Cairngorm stones, which I would love to, if we ever had a picture of that, wouldn't that be wonderful to see oh, what yeah. they actually look like? But Cairngorm stones, they would sell those in the inn. And I'm, I can just imagine what kind of a, a pressure uh, a traveler would be under when they, when a servant came up to them and said, we have these souvenirs, would you like to buy one? <laughs> so I'm sure they <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here's a rock. Take it back with you. We'll sell it to you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's just uh, fascinating to see that all of these little uh, services um, started to pop up and you begin to see that network that you were talking about earlier and uh, how, you know, this, these inns really became that economic hub. As I say, I, I see a lot of parallels in modern day travel to this period of research that you've uncovered. Uh, I travel a great deal myself and, and every hotel I go into, you know, there's, there's a, a brochure rack in the lobby, whether there's a concierge or not, there'll be a brochure rack. And a lot of hotels, you know, have a small gift shop where you can buy those little souvenirs. So you don't have to go out hunting around town for things like that. Certainly they don't necessarily, so many now have live entertainment, but they, you know, you have cable TV and music channels and all of that. So all of those, those needs are addressed, but I see so much of that originating in this time frame that you're talking about. But let's cut to the root of the of the research, and that is why female innkeepers. And you cite there are some specific reasons why we see the emergence of female innkeepers in this time frame. Yeah, certainly it was uh, that they had the skills. You know, they were uh, they grew up uh, taking care of family, uh, and those skills were easily transferable. But one of the key reasons that women became innkeepers, especially in Laird in in uh, Laird built inns, was uh, that they had a good reputation. So at that time, when it, women wanted to have a good reputation and maintain that, and so they came. Uh, to the job with that reputation. Uh, they also had an excellent way of uh, keeping the peace with the people who were in the inn. So, so, you know, as a laird, you wanted the least problems possible. And if you were the factor or the land manager, you wanted even less problems. You just wanted people to fall in line, it made your job easier, right? So they would want, they would actually go out and try and hire women to be innkeepers, not only because of the skills they brought in, as I said, but also because they had this incredible ability to keep the peace amongst a diverse group of people who were staying there. So if you imagine an inn and people come in at night and many, if not all of the travelers night after night would be men, there were women as well, definitely female travelers, but uh, many of them would be men based on the jobs we mentioned earlier, like 
uh, government, military, drovers, that sort of thing. They would be in your inn uh, and you would want to serve them alcohol because that's how you made your money. And so they would be under the influence of alcohol. And as you can imagine, there were that was sort of ripe for problems. And women had this incredible ability and were known to be able to keep the peace and to calm people down and to provide an atmosphere where they could kind of diffuse situations. So between that, the skills and the reputation that they came in with, uh, women were primed to be uh, in these roles at this time. And I know that you've become particularly well acquainted with at least one of the female innkeepers that you uh, uncovered in your research. Tell me a little something about her. Janet McLaren. You know, I think um, I've come to the point where I'm doing things like hugging gravestones and <laughs> falling in love with people who died 200 years ago. You know, <laughs> So this is what happens, I think, when you're surrounded by this research. <laughs> but, um, but I love Janet McLaren. So she uh, was an innkeeper in Amory in uh, the 1830s. And she, so Amory is uh, near Creef, so she's north of Creef. And what's great about Janet is we do not have a lot of sources that are in the hands of female innkeepers or that are written by female innkeepers. This is one absolutely incredible source. It's a accounting waste book. So sort of the notes that you would write uh, before you transferred your formal notes into your your accounting book for your bookkeeper. And it's all written in her hand. And so she, uh, we know that she starts working in Amory at the inn there in the 1830s. And so she starts out as Janet Campbell uh, working at the inn. And Joseph McLaren uh, takes the inn, is the um, Lord Bernalbin gives him the lease. Uh, he bid a hundred pounds for a year and he got it. And I think my, my suspicion is one of the reasons why he got that job was because he was an innkeeper in Creek. So he already had done this job previously. And now uh, I suspect Lord Bernalbin looked at that and went, well, he's done it before and he's done it successfully. So why not give him a chance? And, um, so he starts uh, working at this inn and obviously hires Janet. And I, uh, based on my research, I suspect they uh, fell in love and were married. And Joseph dies about 18 months into uh, uh, Janet working at the inn. And uh, so she becomes the sole innkeeper. And that's not unusual for a widow, as I said earlier, to become an innkeeper. Uh, she is the sole innkeeper of this inn. It is essentially at the convergence of several roads uh, leading to trysts in the south. So we know for certain there were um, drovers were uh, a big part of the people that uh, Janet served, but she also served road construction workers and locals for certain uh, military excise men, um, gamekeepers, and a wide, wide variety of people. And so it's interesting to see because she hires people to work in her in her farm. She hires men. So she oversees the men to work on her farm. And most uh, inns in the Highlands and Islands were also attached to a farm, which made total sense because you could get some things to help supply her in that way. Um, but we learned through her, uh, the, the notes in her waste book that um, she not only hires and fires people, um, she not only oversees men, as I said, but she also uh, acts as the local cash machine. <laughs> so if you're, if you're a local and she knows you, 
she lends you money. So that suggests that her cash flow is quite healthy. Um, but you can think about that, right? Like how is this, it was a cash economy. How would you get cash and how would you get a loan if there was not necessarily a bank within an easy distance? So Appleby Inn was, was essentially the local cash machine. Uh, I'm guessing there were not ATMs at these inns in those days. <laughs> no, definitely not. But if you had a good relationship with your innkeeper, then uh, you could definitely get cash and get a, a loan that you needed. And, you know, it's it, the Amory Inn is an interesting sort of case because uh, right near it, uh, even today, is a, a church nearby. And the she was not the only female innkeeper at that inn. There were several female innkeepers prior to her, including... Uh, an innkeeper by the name of McDougal, and she was a widow. And we see that, we see distinctly that she had status as well. So she was given uh, special pews in the church for herself, her family, and the servants of the inn. So she was given this sort of extra status, uh, you know, prime seating, as it were, uh, in the local church. So interesting to note that you know, Janet wasn't the only female innkeeper at that location. And obviously, uh, there were sort of side benefits that you got, you know, these special mm. chair, special areas in church. And stuff. So is this, is this time frame really a time when, and particularly in this area of research, in this particular little corner of the world, um, where we're sort of seeing the first evidence of women breaking through what then might have been considered a glass ceiling for them? No, actually, that's interesting, a very interesting question, uh, Glenn, because really women worked everywhere. So it, there's this, I think there is this perception of um, women's history that uh, women didn't work and, um, you know, and we know that with some of the uh, gentry class that women didn't work because they didn't really have to. Um, but in general, throughout Europe and especially uh, in Scotland, Women absolutely worked. So it was, this was not unusual. It was not unusual for people to have a job, as it were. Uh, and there are different sort of varying, you know, what is a job, but certainly um, uh, women uh, had the opportunity to make money, took uh, professions um, like innkeeping, and uh, took other professions that we may not really um, consider necessarily women's work. You know, we were talking about earlier about taking care of a family is similar to innkeeping. Women did all kinds of things. And I think as historians, I was just in a, a conference in um, London and we were talking about how there is this lack of awareness around women at work. It really started to shift sort of in the enlightenment period and onwards where uh, there was this kind of glass ceiling and women were told you don't need to work or you shouldn't have to work. And, uh, but prior to that, women worked everywhere. So why then do you think there's been so little attention paid to the existence and the impact that these female innkeepers had on in Scottish history and particularly in the evolution, the emergence of the tourism and hospitality industry in Scotland then? I think there is uh, a lot of work that has been done over time on those sort of larger narratives in Scotland, like Culloden, like the clearances. You know, again, back to that sort of romantic uh, thing that we were talking about earlier, there has been a lot of research uh, by historians on uh, military uh, skirmishes and things like that. A big part of that is the available sources. There is a, you know, if you were um, part of the military, there are uh, sources available on that. 
Um, those larger narratives, as I was saying, the Culloden story, Clarence's story, are fascinating and have many sort of um, uh, pieces to them. Uh, and so, and there are documents to help support the research. Where we have a lack of documents is on women's history or anything to do with women. And so it's actually a lot harder <laughs> to do that research. So I think then, you know, why, you know, why would you go down the path of um, that's really quite tough when you can maybe look at things where there are lots of uh, available sources. And as well, when we look at time periods, 1850 onwards, when we get into that sort of early 20th century time period, there are um, increasingly more and more and more documents available and digitized documents available. So historians around the world can look at documents no matter where they are. So, and the earlier in time we go, the harder it is, and the less there is that's digitized. So when we look at available sources and um, what's there, you know, there is a lack of resources for women. And so that's challenging in, a, in and of itself. But there are some amazing historians uh, throughout the world that are working on women's history in Scotland uh, and looking at women's history in the Highlands and Islands. And um, the stories are fascinating. So then what lessons can we draw from the research and from what you've uncovered with regard to its impact on the modern day tourism industry in Scotland and specifically the hospitality industry in Scotland and women's role in that? Well, we know that now that uh, women played a key role in establishing the infrastructure for tourism and hospitality prior to it just exploding in the Highlands and Islands uh, post-1840 after the railways came in. So we know that they had, you know, whether or not they actually knew it at the time, and I suspect they probably didn't realize it at the time, uh, opening these inns, providing these services uh, was setting down and laying down the infrastructure for tourism, the infrastructure for hospitality. Hospitality. Uh, it was also connecting all of these rural locations and townships with the wider world, both through the uh, uh, travelers that were coming in and the services that they would uh, need and that the innkeepers uh, would get. So women were actually um, doing globalization way before they, <laughs> we probably even realized or came up with that term, you know. But I think what's interesting is that it does open us up to look at, well, how did hospitality, how did the hospitality industry change over time uh, from then to now? Uh, it gives us an opportunity to go, okay, what about the roles of men, though? Like, what were, what were their roles? Uh, well, in, we were drinking in, whiskey and talking about what was to be seen in the area. <laughs> you were. I can tell you. I've and we still it. do, so. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, the other two, on just on that note, too, the other two areas that I did see uh, lots of evidence of men being involved was as ostlers or horse handlers. So every time a traveler came in, they would, the first kind of order of business is, is taking care of the horse because the horse would be tired. And uh, men consistently were the ones who took care of that. And the other one that, um, the other sort of role was taking money. Uh, so they would, about half the time, they would take money from travelers in exchange uh, as the travelers left. So, you know, that we know, but I think there's more. What else is, what else happened with men uh, during that time? So when we're looking at um, 
through a gendered lens at history, uh, it's important not just to look at women, but also to look at men. So this, this research sort of uh, opens that uh, discussion up a bit, which I think is good. And I think there's opportunity, too, to, to look at uh, women in hospitality today and how that's developed over time. And other things like from a tourism perspective, like destination development, uh, there are tons of stories out there that uh, towns and areas can can capitalize on, um, even produce museum exhibitions about innkeeping or innkeepers in their area and uh, the impact of even hospitality on rural communities and how that today is still so important. So I think it's a, a great opportunity for us not only to acknowledge uh, what these women did back then, but then also look at, see, well, how does that work today and how has it changed or not? And I was also reminded in prepping for our, our chat, Lord Bernalbin, um, we talked about him, you know, having the foresight to build inns along the thoroughfare uh, that crossed his vast property holdings. And I'm reminded of the Motel 6 chain and Best Westerns and the idea of chain hotels. And you can travel from town to town and stop and, and you know, and, and Tom Bodette saying, we'll leave the light on for you. I'm almost envisioning Lord Bernalbin as sort of... Of an, an, a very early entrepreneurial Tom Bodette saying, you know what, it's not a bad idea to leave a light on for these folks as they're traveling across my land. I think so. I think he should have just called it Bert Albin. You know, I think it's such a lovely name. Oh, yes. and so he could have called all, you know, five of his inns that he we know he built uh, the Bert Albin chain. Um, maybe he did. I've never actually looked at that. <laughs> There's your next research. <laughs> exactly. It seems like a natural fit. Yeah, it seems like there would be a Bert Albin inn in all these little communities wherever you were going. You know, it just seems a natural well, I, I I hate to wrap things up, but eventually we have to. But I know, uniquely for you, I think, I, I don't know how many researchers can say this, your research came full circle because you've actually discovered that there is, within your family, a female innkeeper. Tell me a little about that discovery. Yes, my female innkeeper. Well, I was, um, I had just finished my master's dissertation. So this was before I had won an award for it. So it was before I had won this award and before I had had the pleasure of talking to you, Glenn, on this show. Um, and so it was very much at the early stages of me just finishing, you know, and uh, I had gone to Glenlivet and Glenlivet is, uh, I have a lot of family there. And, uh, and so originally our, my family's from the Black Isle and, and my cousin who loves genealogy said to me, we were just looking at family charts. She usually brings them out and we kind of correct them as we go and whatever. And, and she said, um, she said to me, what was your research on for your dissertation? And I said, well, it was on female innkeepers. And she said, well, you know, you have a female innkeeper in our family. And I said, what? <laughs> you know, I could, I really couldn't believe it. Cause I didn't even think I was literally not even thinking that I might have a female innkeeper in my family. Well, sure enough, about 100 years later than the start of my research, so born in 1890, uh, was Flora Mackay. And she was the innkeeper at Craighead Inn, sort of just down the road uh, from Glenlivet. And she was born in 1890, and she died in 1961. She was 71. And so I was so excited, and, and my cousin said to me, let's get in the car, and we've never actually found her grave site, but uh, let's go and see if we can find it. And um, we got there, the whole family, all of us were there, and we started to walk around this gravesite. And sure enough, I'm the one who found it, which was 
really amazing for me because oh, it could have been any of us. And I was the one who found it. And sure enough, there was her name. And it was just a really a lovely conclusion to doing the research to know that, um, you know, not only did I actually have one in my family, but that these women, uh, even past the time that I was studying, uh, were innkeepers over and over and over again throughout the Highlands and Islands. So a lot of these inns um, actually still exist. Um, and we've talked about the Outlander effect a couple of times, and we know now that there are tours across Scotland where people are going to see, obviously, the, the filming sites and the, the historical sites involved in those novels and the new television show. I'm sensing perhaps there's an in tour to be done here. There's definitely an in tour because many of these inns still exist are still operational. Of course, the buildings are quite different than they would have been back in the 1700s, but um, uh, they're still there. They're still on the thoroughfares and still on the trackways. You know, uh, Kenmore, the one that we talked about on Lord Bredalbin's estate, um, Amory is still there, and uh, other places like Golsby in um, Sutherland. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely an inn tour, and all of those inns have amazing stories tied to them. My thanks, as always, to my guest and my good friend, Teresa McKine. Next time, Teresa and I carry her research one step further. We'll chat about some of the historic inns found in her research that are still open and operating today. Places like the well-known Drover's Inn and King's House Hotel at Glencoe, among others. And soon on the podcast, we'll discuss the inspiration, development, and impact of the .scot domain as it relates to promoting Scotland around the world. And later this summer, we'll hoist a delightfully chilled hard apple cider and learn more about that special product of Scotland. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer, Tapale, Agus Alpa Gubra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www under the tartan sky.scot and while you're there check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive under the tartan sky logo apparel and other items have an idea for a future episode or get in touch via email at info at under the tartan sky.scot visit and like our page on facebook and follow us on twitter where our username is at underscore tartan sky that's the underscore symbol tartan sky And thank you for listening.